You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the the Lord. Okay, so in the second century, a Christian leader named Justin, who was later called Justin Martyr, wrote something called Apologia, and it was explaining and defending the Christian faith to the emperor in Rome. And it was intended to set the record straight about a number of misunderstandings about Christianity. And in it, he noted the differences between Christians in Rome, which was a small minority group at the time, Christians in Rome, and then unbelieving citizens, not saying we're better or look at us, but really in an attempt to prove that believers, contrary to popular opinion, that believers were not a threat to social order, but were actually a source of blessing in the community. At this time in Rome, there were a number of practices or habits that were very common and culturally acceptable. In the area of sexuality, a lot of unbridled sexuality, often harmful sexual practices that treated bodies and typically the bodies of the more vulnerable in society as commodities, things to be used and discarded. The occult was present, dark pagan practices. The city was known for its greed. And then also, it it was a very violent place. People hated each other, and they were divided over issues of race and class. And so Justin in Apologia is telling the emperor that if you're going to claim that our religion is is what's wrong with this city, is what's wrong with society, sound familiar? If our religion is so much a problem here, then you need to be honest, emperor, enough to recognize how destructive the tendencies that are wide, you know, how destructive these tendencies that are widely held by many non-believing Romans are. 
how these practices are actually harmful to people. Quit pretending that what is culturally acceptable is actually beneficial for everyone. And he doesn't leave it there. He then shows that through the teachings of Jesus Christ, that Christians had replaced these practices with new and better habits. In the area of sexuality, they practiced chastity for singles and fidelity for those who were married, upholding marriage and condemning sexual mistreatment. In the area of spirituality, they worshiped and devoted themselves to one God. In their finances, they were remarkably generous and hospitable. And then in the area of relationships, instead of hatred and violence, they loved people that were different than them. They prayed for the en their enemies. They created these strange racially and class diverse groups called churches. And they even welcomed their oppressors and their enemies to come and to receive the benefits of their faith. And the point was this. The way of Jesus is not a threat to progress in society. And the teachings of the Bible are not these oppressive forms of control, but actually are a proven, time-tested way of promoting human flourishing. And he's saying, if you don't believe me, I just realized what I'm about to say. If you don't believe me, just watch, right? Just, just watch their lives. Just watch how they live. Let that be the proof. This was the vision that no doubt was instilled in the Roman church through the writings of the Apostle Paul in a letter that we now know as the book of Romans and specifically the verses that we're looking at today. Now, let's step back. Remember, the book of Romans is about the good news that God, through his son Jesus Christ, has formed a new humanity, a very new way of living in this world. And over the last few chapters, Paul has now been explaining how this new humanity, the, the humanity that we belong to, how it relates to the world around it, to other believers, to strangers, to enemies, to the authorities, and now as we see this afternoon, to our neighbors. As we look at this next portion, I've got to mention that I really struggled connecting these verses Together, I'd actually hoped, I'd wish that I had broken this into two different sermons, but we've packed this year really, really tight. And the reason I, I, I wish that I had broken it into two sermons is if you look at the first section, verses 8 through 11, it's focused on love and love for neighbors and fulfilling the law of God. And then the remainder of the passage is focused on holiness, personal holiness, and walking in righteousness. And, and again, I'd wished I'd broken it into two different sermons until... I read this quote from Francis Schaeffer who said this, the Christian really has a double task. He or she has to practice both God's holiness and God's love. Not his holiness without his love, this is only harshness. And not his love without his holiness, that is only compromise. Holiness without love, that's harsh. Love without holiness, that's compromise. But these are the very common tendencies that the church experiences to lean one way or the other, to lean either into, you know, these loveless demands, harsh demands for moral conformity, something that we often unfortunately see among conservative evangelicals, 
or to lean in the other direction and to lean towards compromising these vague displays of, la of love that lacks clarity and lacks holiness, something that we see often in liberal mainline Protestantism. And so Schaefer goes on to say, anytime a church fails to display both love and holiness simultaneously, then they present to the watching world what he described as a caricature of God, a misrepresentation of who God is. We misrepresent Jesus and his kingdom. In reality, I want us to reflect Jesus and his kingdom accurately. I want to reflect Jesus faithfully, and I want to reflect Jesus winsomely. And I believe in order to do that, as we see in this passage, we need both love and holiness. And so we're going to look at this passage under two main points. Each point's going to have some subpoints if you're taking notes. We're going to look first at walking in love and secondly, walking in light. Let's look first at walking in love. Now, a general principle that I still remember from my childhood being in school was that you shouldn't use a word in its own definition. So if you're defining a word, you shouldn't use that word to define the word. It's a circular definition. And what it does is it assumes the meaning of the word without ever actually defining it. But it seems that we have forgotten that principle today when it comes to a very, very important word. And that word is love. Love. Over the last decade, a phrase that has become sort of a mantra for our society, it's really at the heart of the cause for social change and equality, the phrase is love is love. Love is love. Yeah, but what is love? Well, it's, it's love. Okay, I see what you did there, but like, what is, what is love? But it's love, that's the point. It's self-defined, it's subjective, it's whatever you want it to be. So I read an article that interviewed eight activists and asked them specifically, what does love is love mean to you? And of course, there were a number of answers. One woman named Angelique said this, love is love means to me that we all should be able to love how we want and there's nothing wrong with any kind of love. And she goes on to say, to say love is going to save our planet. Now think about that. Any kind of love. You see, the issues that arise when love is simply subjective, when it's simply self-defined, because like, what if my kind of love compromises your kind of love? What if what I love you hate? What if the way that someone chooses to express love actually threatens the health and safety and dignity of someone else. Nothing wrong with any kind of love, really? Let's not forget the context that the letter of Romans was written into. Where in the first century in Rome, it was perfectly legitimate and legal for men of social status, of course, to express romantic desires and to fulfill their sexual pleasures with slaves, prostitutes, young women, married women, young men, and even children. Not just in a way that was sort of like secretly acceptable, but oftentimes celebrated. And it was a way that an individual would position themselves in the social hierarchy. 
Love is love is not a magical equation for progress, but actually can bring devastation. When love is self-defined, there is often someone being negatively affected downstream. Today, it's often the unborn who suffer loss at someone else's demands to love how they want to love, either a consenting woman or a violating man. Either way, it's someone demanding to express love how they want to, and someone suffers. So clearly, clearly, we need a better, more comprehensive, defined vision of love in order to promote human flourishing among all people, especially those who are most vulnerable among us. So, what is love? What does love look like? Well, according to verses 8 through 10, love is not fundamental. Love is not subjective. Love is not self-focused. But instead, love is an obligation. Love is objective. And love is others-focused. Let's look at those three definitions here. First, love is an obligation. Look with me again in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So love is not a suggestion. It's not about this sort of fleeting, sentimental feeling that kind of comes and goes. Love is described here as an obligation to both God and to our neighbor. And it's described even as a debt that we never cease to owe. You know that feeling when you finally work off a debt, maybe at the end of like five or six years, you finally pay off a car, or that moment you pay off that student debt, or maybe even one day you like finish paying off a house or whatever the feeling is, you're like, okay, that is fulfilled, I can move on now. But we never move on from love. Douglas Moo, a commentator on this passage, said this, we will never be in a position to claim that we have loved enough. Think about the people in our lives where I'm like, I have loved them enough. Paul would say, mm, there's still opportunity for love. There's still obligation for love. Not only is love an obligation, but it is also objective. Love is objective. And what I mean by that is that love is not determined by our own personal feelings or our own interpretations of the word. It's not something that's sort of fluid, that ebbs and flows with what our culture esteems. No, love is fixed. The Bible describes love as something concrete, something with definite, unchanging shape. And so to the question, well, what does love look like? Paul's answer is actually very surprising. His answer is love looks like God's law looks like God's law. Look at me again in verses 9 through 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
So the world is going to look to a number of sources to define love. We should expect nothing less than this ebb and flow, always subjective definition of love from the world. But for the Christian, for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we have one ultimate source, and it's God's word. And if you're a note taker, take this down. We are going to love our neighbors best when we are following God's instructions closest. You want to love your neighbor? You want to love the world around you? Stick close to God's word. This does not make it up as we go. This isn't what has been described as situational ethics where we just determine what to do based on the circumstance itself. No, this is allowing God's word to shape our lives and to shape how we love. Now, the temptation that the church faces in every single generation, but especially today, is the temptation to see God's commands as unloving. We read them and we're like, oh, that doesn't seem very loving. There are those passages that we want to like avoid. There are those passages like today where you're like, dang it, I knew I shouldn't have invited someone today. They're just a guess. You're really gonna bring them through that? We think things like, man, it's unloving to say that God alone is worthy of our devotion. It's unloving to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's unloving to people of other faiths. Or we think things it's like, like this. It's unloving to uphold a biblical teaching about sexuality. It must be unloving to promote celibacy among the unmarried or to remain completely committed to marriage between one man and one woman to uphold God's vision for family. That must be unloving. And yet we're forgetting that God's commands are an expression of his love for us and are the single best way to promote human flourishing in this world, even if it doesn't initially feel like it. Even if it pushes against the cultural grain, guess what? God's word is always going to push against the cultural grain. We're set apart. We're different. We're exiles. We're strangers. It's not hateful or oppressive to call people to fidelity to God. It's hope. It's life. It's forgiveness. It's eternity. It's not hateful or oppressive to promote God's vision for gender or sexuality or marriage. It's an expression of his love. It's an expression of his best. And thirdly, Love is others-focused. Love is others-focused. Loving your neighbor, Paul says, sums up the law. And the key to this sort of law-abiding love is that it refuses to take. It refuses to make it about us. Think about these commands. It refuses to take someone else's spouse in adultery. It refuses to take someone else's life in murder. It refuses to take someone else's stuff through stealing. It refuses to take someone else's moment of celebration in coveting and on and on and on. What does love do? It refuses to take. By its very definition, love is others-focused. In fact, the Greek root word here is agape. And agape is a deliberate choice to strive for another's highest good. It's sacrificial. It's, it's giving. It's, it's totally selfless, totally self 
forgetting. That's why today's obsession with this concept of self-love is literally an oxymoron. Literally an oxymoron. Love your neighbor as yourself is not God instructing us or encouraging us to love ourselves more. What it's saying is that what we naturally tend to do for ourselves without even thinking, we ought to intentionally do for others. That's real love. In fact, Jesus would say in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying there is no greater expression of love than to lay down our wants, our own preferences, our own desires, our own demands for the sake of someone else, for the sake of others. And ultimately, the gospel shows us that this, this is the kind of love that saves our world. The only one who could truly say, you know what, I have loved enough, went above and beyond. Not only did Jesus fulfill the, the, the commands and the demands of the law completely, but then he sacrificed himself on the cross for those of us who couldn't. Those of us under judgment for the ways that we had failed in our obligation. And then in power, he rose on the third day from the grave to give us new life and new power to live for him. Paul would say earlier in Romans these words, for God has done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit what Paul's saying is that for those of us who've trusted in the gospel we are now empowered by the spirit of God to walk in the love of Christ in a way that totally fulfills the law of God so that we can accurately display the love of Christ best and so that we can actively participate in what promotes human flourishing. What has God called us to? God has called us to walk in the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's our pivot point. Now let's look secondly at walking in the light, walking in the light. I was singing my guts out in that first set and my voice is already going. So something I was reminded of in, in my preparation for this passage is that these were the verses that God used to save St. Augustine, who became one of the most famous Christians in history. As many of you know, Augustine was a very unlikely convert. He lived a wild and promiscuous lifestyle. His mother was a believer. She prayed for him daily. She tried to instill Christian values in him, but he, like many of us at one point in our lives, he went his own way. He went his own way. But later in his search for life's meaning in pleasure and entertainment and education, what he found himself was emptier and emptier. The more he tried to fill the void, the emptier that he felt. And then he began to search for truth and meaning in philosophy, and he found emptiness there too. And while he was in a city called Milan, at a really low point, he just needed to get away by himself, and in his confessions he says he sat down in a garden 
He was depressed. He loathed his life. He felt really dark inside. He was aware of how his habits were sort of self-destructive and they were destroying the lives of the people around him, but he just couldn't help it. He just kept feeling drawn back to these, these habits. He, couldn't, he was powerless to change himself. He didn't know where to turn. And as he was sitting there, he says, as I was sitting there in silence, I hear a child beginning to sing, take up and read, take up and read. And he's like, that's a strange song. That's kind of a nerdy song, actually. Like, what kind of child sings, take up and read a book? <laughs> and then he realized, that's not a child song. That's a summons from God. And he realized it was God calling him. And so what he did was he scrambled to find the Bible, and he just found a Bible, and, which can be kind of dangerous. He just kind of, like, opened it to the first page, and he looked straight down at the page. And the first passage that his eyes gazed upon were these very words. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And it was through these words right here that he was awakened both to the gravity and the destruction of his own sin, but more importantly, the beauty and the abundance of salvation found in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, he repented and he believed. I think that is so strange that words like this, that we would tend to think are gonna push people away. Words like this where I'm like, oh, that's gonna scare off all the seekers were actually the words that God uses to save and transform lives. God's word. And he goes on to say this, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Friends, today we need the light of Christ to flood our hearts as well, in, in a way that dispels the darkness and awakens us to his life. This is walking in, what walking in light is all about. And so in conclusion, what I wanna do is I just wanna apply this with three brief applications. What does it mean to walk in the light of Jesus Christ? It means first, that we have to dwell in tomorrow. We've gotta to dwell in tomorrow. I remember as a young boy, on Saturday night, before daylight savings time, my dad would go throughout the entire house and change all the analog clocks fairly early on Saturday. Now, I'd stay over at my friend's houses on Daylight Savings Weekends, and they would get around to it on Sunday, maybe even like Monday morning, scrambling, remembering like, oh, we forgot to change the clocks, microwave would be off for like a few weeks, the car would never be changed. I'd be like, I'll get around to it in six months, it's gonna be right. Not my dad. He would dial all the clocks in sometime in the afternoon or early evening of that Saturday, and then we would go to bed 
according to the soon-to-be time. And I always felt that that was kind of like wrong. That's jacked up to do to a kid. And I always found it strange looking at these analog clocks that, that didn't change themselves, by the way, and thinking like, it's different. Like the time that is stated there is different than the time that it actually is at this very moment. But what my dad understood is that the future shapes the present. And that there is something about tomorrow that is soon going to make sense of changing things right now. It's not enough to get around to it later. Many of us have that philosophy when it comes to the things of God. I'll get around to it later. I'll take God serious later. I'll repent of that sin later. I'll start doing this later. I've got time. And Paul says, no, no, no. The day that's dawning demands our lives come into alignment right now. Right now. Life between Jesus' first coming and between his first coming and his second coming is like that Saturday night before daylight savings time. We are between two times. If you can imagine like a Venn diagram, we are living in the overlap of what the Bible describes as the current age and the age to come. Christians are called to wake up and live today as if it is tomorrow. Christian, Christianity is so much more than this like dry demand for moral conformity. It's about aligning our lives with what is gonna be true and what's gonna be lasting. It's allowing our behaviors and our thoughts and our desires to be tuned to the time of heaven. The future is so sure, Paul says, so close at hand that you gotta reorient your life right now. The night, that's ending. The night is perishing. Why would you put stock in something that is gonna be gone forever? But the day, he says, the day is dawning. The day is lasting. The light is just beginning to peek over the horizon. Live today like it is tomorrow. Secondly, we've also got to dress like it's tomorrow. Dress like it's daytime. And Paul describes this as first casting off the works of darkness. What we did earlier in our service through confession is casting off the works of darkness. It's repenting of our sins. Friday, I was out in the sun for a long portion of the day, and it was like really, really hot for October. And I was sweaty and grimy and gross, and I had an event to be at that night, and I couldn't wait to like peel the, sorry to give you the visual, but like to peel the, the, the clothes off and to like replace those dirty, filthy garments. And likewise, likewise, we peel off the old us. What, what is repentance? It's, it's peeling off the old us that no longer defines us, that's no longer true about us, turning from our sin. And then through faith, we put on Jesus Christ. We put on his righteousness. We clothe ourselves in his goodness and his beauty and his purity. We wear our new identity in Jesus Christ, no longer defined by the worst parts of us, no longer defined by our sin, but forever defined by Jesus, forever defined by his beauty, forever defined by his purity. Why would we ever want to be clothed in us again? And then lastly, to walk in the light means to display the light of Christ. 
as we walk in our new identity in Jesus, it's described not just as wearing clothes of light, but armor of light. And I didn't know what to do with that one word until today. I was like, I don't, I'm just going to like, armor of light. I guess it's just armor of light until it dawned on me. This is such a helpful way in understanding how we as God's people set apart and holy are to engage our culture today. This is how we make war against falsehoods and how we make war against misunderstandings. It's not described here as a cultural battle fought in ongoing arguments. And it's not described as a war that is fought on the political plane either. No, it's described here as a battle that is fought and won by putting on Christ, by allowing the holiness of Jesus to transform our lives and transform our relationships. No one changes culture by simply trying to change culture. You change culture by creating something new and more beautiful that makes the old obsolete. And this is what Paul is describing here. Madeline Langle put it this way. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it as well. How do we shine like that? How do we shine in a community-transforming, heart-inspiring way? We know it comes through abiding in Jesus by remaining close to him. Like the moon, the strength of the reflection is increased by the proximity of our communion. And our lives are going to shine brightest when we commune closest. And so to bring it back full circle from the first evening we met here, what is the plan for our community? To stay close to the presence of God dependent on him and allowing his beauty to radiate through our lives in a way that inspires men and women and children to come be a part as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.